Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 3. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed upon us the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and insight. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he sent forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards the redemption of God's own people to the praise of his glory. God's word for God's people and God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to talk a little bit about the blessing of the body. The blessing of the body. <clears throat> Theologian Mitzi J. Smith said that Ephesians reads like a legal document detailing the merger of two bodies, uh, one foreign, which was the Gentiles, and one domestic, which is the circumcised of the Hebrew people. When you have two different bodies coming together and getting under one roof, so to speak, I can see trouble. Just like when you get a new roommate in college or you're assigned to a new department at work or you get married, <clears throat> there is bound to be some conflict with different personalities and different value systems coming together and different ways of thinking. And if not conflict, at least uh, trying to get an understanding of how the other person does things. I can understand not only trying to merge two different bodies together, but I can understand trying to have a merger within yourself. Uh, it's the new year. Uh, it's the first Sunday of the new year, and so we are uh, performing mergers as well, personally. You know, a lot of people are running around saying, the new year, new me. <laughs> you got your, your resolutions, your goals, the things you want to make, and so there's a merger. You're trying to reconcile who you are in your head and who you are really. Meaning who, who you want to be and who you are. Those two things are trying to come together. They're merging. Uh, someone else talked about this as well. Uh, W.E.B. Dubois spoke on it. He called it a double consciousness. But when he was talking about it, he wasn't necessarily talking about a new corporate merger or 
two new people coming together and, 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 and living together. Uh, he was actually talking about being an African-American in a predominantly white United States. Uh, it is a peculiar sensation, he says, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, measuring one's soul by a tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels this twoness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in a dark body whose dogged strength keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of strife, this longing to obtain a self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better, truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither the older selves to be lost. He does not wish to Africanize America for America. It has to, for America has too much to teach the world. In Africa, he wouldn't bleach his Negro blood in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows his Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be a, both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. It's a two-ness. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, a double consciousness. You deal with trying to strive when people are looking to tear you down. I'm reminded of a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. as well, uh, is one that some of these new revolutionaries have started quoting, but they're only quoting the partial quote. Uh, I say new revolutionaries because there are people who have been fighting on the front lines for a very long time, and now all of a sudden it's a bunch of new people because the, the events that have happened in the news recently, I guess, galvanized them or was, was the catalyst to bring them to the forefront, but they don't understand people have been fighting about this for a long time. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's more than just Facebook and Instagram posts and calling people coons and Uncle Toms. It's deeper than that. Mm -hmm. But one thing I've heard people quote in the struggle, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, I fear that in integration, I have integrated my people into a burning building. Hmm. But that's a half of a quote. People use that quote to try to encourage separation. But the other half of the quote that Dr. Martin Luther King was telling Harry Belafonte when he spoke to him, because that's where the quote came from, he said, I fear that in fighting for integration, I have integrated my people into a burning building, but we ought to be the firemen to put the fire out instead of watching the house burn. Half a quote. The first half, you could, you could see it on that side of your mind. And it's like, oh, yeah, fight, fight, fight. We shouldn't have integrated. Even Martin Luther King said we shouldn't integrate. That ain't what he said. He said, get off of your hind parts instead of watching everything happen and do something about it. <clears throat> a two-ness, a double consciousness, uh, 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 being surrounded by a bunch of people that don't necessarily think and feel the way you do, and you're trying to get a grip of what's going on, but you're also trying to maintain your own identity, your own body. 
This is somewhat of what the people of God were experiencing at that time. Yes, Christianity to us is old and long-standing and, and been around forever. But when it first came out, it was the new kid on the block. There were a bunch of other pagan religions and other, other deities that people tried to worship during that time. And so really in that time, even though we are in the majority now, they were in the minority then. And not only were they in the minority then, they sometimes had to hide it. And they put little symbols up to, to let you know. It'd be maybe a symbol of a fish over a house to let you know that it was a believer. Or a symbol like my ring, which is a Greek chi over a Greek row, which was Christos. How you spell Christos? A chi row ring. They had symbols to hide because... Right now, Christianity is prevalent and popular. But back then, they actually considered those who were believing in Jesus and, 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 and uh, Hebrews, for that matter, as well. They thought they were atheists. Because if they were going to the temple of Mars to worship the god of uh, whatever, or, 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 the, uh, or the temple of Ares or Venus, and they were going to all of these temples to worship and that person didn't go, you don't believe in none of this? You must be an atheist. So not only was there this double consciousness with trying to maintain yourself, knowing you believe in something and knowing nobody else around you believe in something and they're treating you like you don't believe in anything at all. But you have the Gentiles and the Jews coming together to form this new thing. So not only were they dealing with the internal struggle, but they were dealing with an external struggle. So the Apostle Paul, or uh, as some people, uh, some scholars would say, the Apostle Paul, uh, they put it in writing because there's an academic dispute upon whether or not Paul actually wrote the letter to the Ephesians. They think that Paul wrote some of them, but they also think some of his students wrote it and then put his name on it. And they call those certain Deutero-Paul line letters in amongst the New Testament, so they go back and forth. Well, maybe Paul wrote it, maybe Paul didn't. Personally, I don't care. Amen. It's still inspired by the Holy Spirit, and if my student wrote something on my behalf, if it was what I intended to say, I'm cool with it, because I taught him. It makes it no less authoritative in my opinion. But they say Paul or Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus, which is sitting right now in what would be modern day Turkey, trying to get this church on the right track, trying to get this church organized and, and trying to get the church organized and laying out everything that organized this church and how it was supposed to be structured. He likens it to a body. And that's how he goes upon the, the letter to the Ephesians uh, breaking down what happened. So it's a body. And this body was planned by the Father. Let the church say planned. planned. It was planned by the Father. The, the, he blessed us. The first part of the text starts off uh, with a blessing. Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. It's a blessing. There are similar blessings in 2 Corinthians 
1, 3, and 4, and 1 Peter uh, 1, 3 through 12. And it takes us back to the Old Testament where you'll find these same kind of blessings going on in 1 Kings, uh, namely 8, 15, and 8, 56, and also uh, Psalms in 71 as well. Uh, I mean, 72, uh, 18 through 19, and 41, 13. These are blessings that are commonly used. The Hebrew people called this a baraka. Uh, it's a blessing, and they perform these things both in private and in public, before enjoying food, before performing a mitzvah, which is a commandment, all kinds of occasions. They always would use these blessings, and they did these blessings, this structured baraka blessing, on every occasion that they could think of because they realized as a people, all blessings came from God. The point of the blessing was not only to be thankful for the blessing, but to also be thankful for the source of the blessing. Some scholars actually say that this passage was a part of a hymn that people sang in the early churches, and I can see that. I can see singing about how good God is, because that's what we do all the time. We've got a hymn full of songs talking about the goodness of God. And even the popular songs that come out now talk about the goodness of God. I think about our doxology, a.k.a. the old 100. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Talking about the goodness of God. I think about Richard Smallwood's total praise. You are the source of my strength. Talking about that. Or if you're more contemporary, I'm, I'm a Jason Nelson fan. He has a song that starts off. In him who I live, move and have my being. Goes on later on to say, because I'm nothing without you. We talk about how good God is. We have to understand not only that we are blessed, and not only are we blessed to bless others, but we also need to understand that who blessed us. We ought to praise him. For he blessed us. And the Bible says if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. And I personally do not want any rock crying out for me, so I will bless him. All times. He blessed us. And not only did he bless us, he selected us. It occurred before the world was formed. Read in your hearing during the beginning of the call to worship, talking about the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. In the beginning, he was with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being, being in him, was life. And the life was the light of all people, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. God has been there from the beginning. He selected us from the beginning. We move around, we make plans, we make goals, we decide how we want to do some things, and we try to do the best we can. But God also has a plan for us. Amen. And he's been working this plan since before we were formed. When I read texts like that and I think about it, I'm reminded of a TV series that I used to watch. It, uh, it went off the air in about 2012 uh, called Leverage. Uh, Leverage, for those who do not know, is a show about a former insurance investigator. And he led a team of former criminals and what they would do is sort of in a Robin Hood sort of way. If you had a corporation that owed somebody money or was taking advantage of people and you couldn't just go call the police 
or you couldn't just sue them in court because they were too powerful to take that out. You called this crew in and they would make sure you got some retribution. They would make the company pay. Nate, Nate Ford was a former insurance investigator, so he knew how it worked from a strategic standpoint. He had a team. And in his team, he had a hacker named Hardison who was skilled with computers. And he had a hitter named Elliot Spencer. And Elliot Spencer was an expert fighter. Uh, Sophie Devereaux, which, which was a grifter. And a grifter is someone who is able to imitate other people, a master of disguise, so to speak. And so that's how they operated. And an and, uh, expert cat burglar by the name of Parker. And so with a hacker, a fighter, a, a grifter, and a cat burglar, and an insurance investigator all come together to take down these companies that was fleecing people out of money. One time, Nate Ford, who normally led all the missions, allowed Hardison to lead a mission. And Hardison was a computer specialist, so he approached it like you would designing a computer game. And he came up with all these elaborate plans and probabilities and statistics and had a flow chart of how each person was going to do something. And Nate was like, I think that plan's a little too complicated. You might want to simple it down. No, no, you don't understand game theory and game behavior and psychology. I've got it all mapped out. Nate Ford said, okay. He took out a piece of paper, wrote down three things, folded a piece of paper up, put it back in his pocket. And as they went through this plan of trying to get this company to pay the money that they had owed this family for putting chemicals in the ground and killing a bunch of relatives, they, they came to the point where Hardison had run out of plans. Everything he did worked all the way up to the point where he could not find anybody else to add to the plan and the company still hadn't paid. And matter of fact, he got caught and had to run. And when they went back to the headquarters, found out Nate had already gotten the money out, made the company pay, and made the people go to jail. Because the three things he wrote on the plan were the three things he needed out of whatever Hardison was doing. Well, okay, just make sure you get a drill Make sure you get a uniform and make sure you get uh, this police person on the shift at this time. And he used the drill and the disguise and the police person to get the safe emptied and get the person caught and turned over to the police and paid the family. What I'm saying is, is Hardison had had all these elaborate things and Nate had already worked it out. And sometimes I think about that when I think about God. I think about how... I write my things down, and yes, I write the vision down and make it plain, but maybe what I had is a little bit too complicated. When you put God on something, it can work a whole lot simpler. And not only will it be a whole lot simpler, it will go a whole lot further than if you did by yourself. Less energy and a better result. There will be that time, well, how did you get that job? How did you get that house? How did you get whatever it is? How were you healed when the doctor said there was nothing else we could do? When you put God into the plan, it works better. And God has been working his plan since before we were born. He's working his plan. And it's better than if we had done it ourselves. And he does it so that we may become holy and blameless. 
the holiness movement started with John Wesley, who is considered the founder of uh, the United Methodist movement. Most people who claim holiness trace their lineage, their apostolic secession, whatever it is you want to call it, back to John Wesley. But other denominations have actually sort of taken more ownership over the holiness movement recently, uh, particularly the Pentecostals. I don't have anything against Pentecostals. I'm not saying it to say that they're wrong. I'm just saying in terms of a historical standpoint, the holiness movement started in the Methodist church and has kind of gotten taken up by the Pentecostals. They've taken ownership. But I will say this. Holiness is not only wearing dresses with no frills and no makeup. Holiness is not saying you can't dance anymore. Holiness is not telling a bunch of people that they aren't really saved unless they come to our church. That is not holiness. The holiness movement has started a whole lot of denominations, a whole lot of colleges, and, and, and people get a quickening when you talk about holiness. Uh, <laughs> I seen a, um, there was a particular pastor I was thinking about that had issue with a seminary professor uh, trying to approach the word from an academic perspective and talking about certain things. And then the pastor did not care what the seminary professor had to say. And after it was all done and said, they shook the professor's hand and said, holiness is still right. Oh, <laughs> holiness is not there is a separation, but it is not a permanent separation. There is not a permanent fixation. Holy is used when we talk about it in the Bible, when you break it down in the Hebrew and the Greek. Holy means separated for the purpose of God's worship. That's what it means. And it's more practical than most people uh, will, will turn. Terms like holy, anointed, clean and unclean and profane they're not permanent designations they're more practical take the laws of Leviticus when they say holy that means separated for worship uh, anointed means selected for a particular task clean means the items in the tabernacle are being used for their particular purpose and unclean means more to keep an eye on it we're going to pay a little bit more attention to it. We're going to separate it from things, but they're not permanent terms. See, this microphone, right, it's in the church. I have anointed it to be pastor's microphone. It's been separated. So if nobody else uses it, if I don't take it outside and use it for something else, it's a holy microphone anointed. And because it's being used... For, what, for worship, it's clean. Now, if the microphone were to start malfunctioning, it's no longer being used for the purpose it was designed. So it would be considered unclean. And the process of it going from clean to unclean is being profaned. But these are not permanent tasks. This is practical tasks and practical designations. So humans were not meant when they said unclean, they weren't meant to be permanently unclean. That's just where they were at, at the point in time. That's how they used it. This table, 
that is holding the elements. It is anointed because it was selected to hold the elements. It is holy because it was set apart to hold the elements. And it is clean because we are using it to hold the elements. But if someone were to sit on the table, it would be profaned. But, and then if we weren't using it for its particular purpose, it would be unclean. But, if they sat on it, might want to wipe it off. But, then you put the elements back on it, it's back to being clean. Does that make sense? We, we, we've caught up the terms holy and anointed and everything else to be like it's a permanent designation. They're more practical when they're used in the Bible. And they paid attention to unclean things because when something was unclean, it could be a life or death matter. But it was never, never meant to be a permanent designation. The holiness movement, we often talk about the holiness movement, and it came from something that John Wesley was doing, but what is often left out about the holiness movement is that John Wesley preached that as a part of many things, most of all, grace. So we don't use, people use the holiness to say, ah, I'm in the right club. You not. I'm in the right church. You not. But that's not what it's about. It's holy when you're worshiping God and doing the correct purpose. But holiness, when John Wesley preached it, was one of the works of grace, particularly the second work of grace. And we preach grace because we didn't get saved by our own. We didn't do it by ourselves. We did it by the blood of Jesus. Which brings me to my second point. The body of Christ was purchased by the Son. Everybody say purchased. purchased. It was planned by God, purchased by the Son. He redeemed us by his blood. There's that blood again. I really, it's just fascinating to me that I run across people who can be a Christian and be offended by the use of blood. I, I just don't understand it. I don't I, I pray I don't have to deal with that sort of sensitivity in my career, but I just <laughs> what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. The Bible says in first Peter one and eight, uh, one 18 through 20, you know that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your ancestors, ancestors, not with perishable goods like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world. There's that plan again beforehand, but was revealed at the end of ages for your sake. This was in the plan. This was God's plan and God's plan for us was executed by the son. Uh, God's mystery being made uh, clear in the fullness of time. And if something is bought, I want all of it. If I go to the donut store and say I want a dozen donuts, if you give me a box full of six, we're going to have a misunderstanding. <laughs> if I go to the ATM machine and I put my card in and say I want to withdraw $100 and only 60 comes out, 
you're probably going to need to buy a new ATM machine. I don't know if that one's going to be working uh, properly after I'm done with it. We want all that we have purchased. We want all that we have purchased and we have this blood-bought right being adopted into the, uh, the, the family, the inheritance. It's God's plan. We are redeemed by his blood. We can't do it by ourselves. That's why the plan had to be executed by the son. And he will someday gather us up for him or to him. As it said, for as a plan in the fullness of time in verse 10 to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. When I thought about that, there was something else that came to mind. Not only when you gather something up, you're gathering it up in the name of something, right? Um, I've been studying a lot about what it means to do something in the name. Uh, a, a passage that comes to mind is in Acts around uh, between Acts 2 and 4 where it talks about Peter and uh, John uh, traveling together and then getting arrested and they, they tell them what, what are we going to do with them basically and they told them you can't do any more things in that name. And I think about the name where it says the name above all names. And I think about where it says at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. But what I've been learning in my study, and I've had to improve myself upon this because I am guilty of it by myself. When it says to do something in the name of Jesus, it's more than just slapping in Jesus' name on the end of the sentence what you want. When you do something in the name, is a, a more applicable term in English would be the nature. You don't just slap the name on something. You have to operate in the full authority of the name. So he's gathering us all up into Jesus, gathering us all up into Christ. He's gathering us all together so that we can all be one with Christ. It's more than saying the name. It's more than carrying the name. There's an entire lifestyle authority, power that is poured into you that is operating, that you can operate in the name. Uh, I think about uh, I used to be a bigger martial arts fan than I am now, but uh, there was a particular family that I paid attention to in uh, the martial arts, in the mixed martial arts fighting there, were by the name Gracie. Uh, the Gracies were so popular that they had um, had their own style of jujitsu, and not only did they have their own style of jujitsu, people could go and say, "I'm taking Gracie jujitsu." But not only that, but you could go from like the '50s up until like '98. Nobody with the last name Gracie ever lost a match. They were that disciplined. They were that ingrained in the training the last name meant something when you heard the name Gracie coming into the ring the, the training that they had done months and years before the fighting style that had been passed down from generation to generation came with the name so it wasn't just the last name <laughs> it was everything that came with the name the nature of the family, the training the discipline, the skill, the knowledge all of that was passed down and so that's what I think about when I think about the name. That's what I think about when I think about being gathered up into Christ. All that is done before, all that is in here is given to us. 
and passed down, not just slapping in Jesus' name on the back of something that we want in the name. And I mean, that's what we're here for, right? To be into Jesus. That's why we do it, so that we can give praise to God. That's why we do it, because we want to be a part of the family. We may not have been born into the family, but like the text says, we are adopted in. So we get the same benefits as if we have been born in. And we, Jesus did this so that we could give praise to God and obtain our inheritance. And the last thing, you know, it's planned by God. It's purchased by Jesus. The last part of it is it is preserved by the Spirit. Let the church say preserved. preserved. The Holy Spirit puts a special seal on our heart. And I like this in the text because beforehand, when you read verses 1 through 3 and, 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 and all the way down almost to about 12, there's been a lot of I and you language. Remember, I said at the beginning this was a merger. There's a lot of I and you language. But now we start getting into the, the you becomes we. Because everybody is coming together. And it's coming together. The merger in the text is starting to take place. Now I've worked for a company or two that was a part of a merger or an acquisition. I recall specifically working for Prudential Healthcare. And I remember when I first started working at Prudential Healthcare before it got bought by Aetna, you answered the phone. Good morning, Prudential Healthcare. How may I help you? Then when it got purchased by Aetna U.S. Healthcare, then we had to say, good morning, Prudential Healthcare, a member company of Aetna U.S. Healthcare. How may I help you? Still had a little bit of both. That's the I, still the I and the U. And then eventually after that, it went over. After a while, you picked up the phone and you said Aetna U.S. Healthcare. The merger was complete. Everything had come together. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. It comes together and puts the seal on it. When you have a company that emerges, the first thing they do is change the logo. Come up with a name. Figure out how to cover it so that when you look on the outside of the box, you know what's on the inside of the box. And you get the brand. If you saw a box and the box said, uh, for some of those a little more familiar with the older cars, if the box said Pinto on it, we have an expectation of what kind of quality is going to be on that item. But if that item said Lexus on the box, we have a different expectation. Well, as a part of this merger, the the best seal that could possibly be put on is that of the Holy Spirit. It's better than anything else you can imagine. And once the merger is complete, they can go forth. No more I and you. It's us and we. We are all a part of God's family. We are all a part of reaping the blessings. We are all a part of getting the inheritance. And that is salvation. I mean, that's what we meet here on Sunday for because we don't, we, we don't want when we get laid down in the ground to be the end. We want the inheritance. We want salvation. We want heaven. Amen. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open and we invite you to come. Amen.